Philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. And you can love humanity by giving your time, your ideas, and your energy. And many people should regard their time as their most valuable asset. You can't make any more time. You can make more money. Give your time, give your ideas, your energy, and that can be just as valuable. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. I am so looking forward to today's episode as we are talking with a true icon when it comes to both the world of private investment as well as philanthropy. There is no shortage of topics to talk to our guests about, be it leadership, boards, global economy, philanthropy, history, the list goes on. Clark, I have to say, I was walking with my other half last night and he casually asked, who is your guest on the podcast tomorrow? And when I mentioned his name, he stopped dead in his track. He could not believe that we managed to get our guest secured for this podcast. I'm always really fascinated about the path that our guest takes. I'd love to know how he's gone from being a lawyer in the US government to ultimately co-founding one of the most successful investment firms. He's also written a ton of books the one that's most interesting to me is How to Lead, where he interviewed a ton of super exciting leaders from Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey. And I want to hear some of the juicy stories behind that. I don't think he'll let you down. This is going to be an amazing chat with one of the world's great investors, someone who is generous in terms of his time and his philanthropy, intellectually curious, a global citizen, truly a global citizen, and an amazing dry wit as well. Clark, who are we talking to today? Our guest is David Rubenstein. David is co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest private investment firms across five continents with more than $375 billion under management. David also serves on the boards of multiple organizations, including the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, the Council on Foreign Relations, the National Gallery of Art, the Economic Club of Washington, and the University of Chicago, among many others. If all that doesn't keep him busy enough, he's also the author, as you said, of four books, the host of two podcasts, and his own television show. So we are lucky to fit him in. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, David, on Redefiners. Thank you. My pleasure. So, David, listen, before we get into your book and Carlisle and so many other interesting topics, there's one question that everyone wants to know and wants to ask. So, this whole thing about the park rangers saying you carved your name at the top of the Washington Monument and says David was here, is it true? Did you really take a pen knife to the Washington Monument? I wouldn't say a pen knife. I would say maybe a pen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> What's it say? Um, if I recall, I put my initials and in maybe something like Go Duke or something like that. <laughs> you couldn't resist, could you? You couldn't resist. But not, but not right. resist. David, let's let's start with those early years, um, maybe slightly before the penknife uh, incident or slightly after. 
Um, you've had such an incredible and varied career. Before we go there, can you tell us a little bit about the early years? You started life as a lawyer in the U.S. government before right. going and co-founding Carlisle. What were some of the early influences? Tell us a bit about your path. Well, I grew up in Baltimore. I am the only child of two individuals who did not complete uh, high school. My father dropped out of high school to go into World War II. He came back. He met my mother. They got married at a very young age. I was their only child. My father worked in the post office uh, his entire career, making you know less than ten thousand dollars a year, probably. And you know it was a blue collar kind of atmosphere. Um, I didn't think I you know was deprived because I wasn't starving or anything like that. I went to public schools. I ultimately got a scholarship to go to Duke University, and then uh, not a basketball scholarship, I assure you. <laughs> and then I uh, went to law school, where I got a scholarship, University of Chicago. And I was only interested in politics and government. Mm -hmm. And so I ultimately wanted to work in the White House. And so I got an offer to go work in the Jimmy Carter campaign in the general election 1976. I thought I would be uh, a senior advisor in the second Carter term. There wasn't a second Carter term, so I had to go back and practice law again. I wasn't that good a lawyer. My clients reminded <laughs> me of that regularly. And I uh, basically decided to do something where I thought it'd be more enjoyable than practicing law. And so I started Carlisle in 1987. There you go. You, you, you've seen so much through crises, through investing, through politics, etc. Is there a defining moment or moments in your career once you started Carlisle or as you started Carlisle? Well, the defining moment was uh, giving up the practice of law. I, I was married. I had some children. Um, you know, I had a fairly good income, but I uh, decided to start Carlisle and just try something new. I was I'd read that entrepreneurs start businesses between the ages of 28 and 37. Obviously, there are people that do it earlier, but if you don't do it by 37, I read that generally you probably will never start a company. And so I was 37 when I read that and said, I better do it now or never do it. And so I got it off the ground. So the defining moment was deciding to do it. I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have any business or finance background. So my partners that I recruited did have some background in, in finance. And so I thought they could oversee the investments and I would figure out how I could add value by trying to raise money. I would be the fundraiser. And that's what I did. Were you ever scared of the risk that you were taking of the unknown? Well, when you are starting a company and you don't know anything, you don't know how little you don't know. Fair enough. So if I had hung around Wall Street people, which I did not do, uh, I was practicing law in Washington, and I told them I'm going to start a firm in, in Washington, it's going to be a private equity firm or start a private equity firm in New York, they would laugh. Hmm. But nobody in Washington knew what a private equity firm was, so they didn't laugh that much. But I, I, so I knew I wasn't really a finance person, but I didn't expect to be, you know, building a firm that turned out to be Carlisle. I expected to have a tiny little investment firm and be more enjoyable than practicing law. So I, you know, when I told a few people what I was going to do, they, they didn't laugh in my face so much. They might have behind my back, but they didn't really think I was trying to build anything of significance. They just thought, okay, a tiny little investment firm, fine. And David, along the way, you've written a lot of books, four books, if I'm not mistaken. Right. The, the one that interests me the most is the one you wrote a couple of years ago on how to lead, um, where in that you interview a ton of really accomplished people, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, the list is quite long. And through conversations with them and their experience, as well as your own, you distill what it, the attributes that it takes for successful leadership. Can you Give us an overview of what those attributes are. I think uh, when interviewing all those people, I basically tried to distill the key elements they had in, in, in their careers. 
and it was one they um, typically, um, I would say, had failures early on. Mm -hmm. uh, they typically were people that picked themselves up and got back into the arena. They were people that were very persistent, reasonably intelligent, not always geniuses, but some were very smart. They were people that were willing to share the credit and to take the blame. They were people that, because of the mistakes they made, had a certain amount of humility. Now, every leader isn't humble. Obviously, we've seen some leaders that were not humble. I don't imagine Napoleon was humble or somebody who called himself Alexander the Great was probably humble. <laughs> and we've seen some presidents of the United States, you might say, might not be humble. But generally, they had certain humility to them. Mm -hmm. I also think they tended to know where they wanted to go. They also knew how to communicate. You can't be a leader without followers. Yeah. And you have to attract followers. How do you attract followers? You have to communicate well. And you do that either by writing well or speaking well or by leading by example. And so they all have that kind of quality to them. They also tended to, I would say, uh, have a vision of what they wanted to try to do and knew where they were trying to go. Though Obviously, sometimes they went in different places. So those are some of the qualities. I, I would say that in the end, they tend to be people who don't usually come from upper income backgrounds. Yeah. Great leaders tend to be people who tend to come from blue collar backgrounds or maybe middle class backgrounds. They don't usually come from the wealthiest families in the world. They do tend to work hard. Yeah. Um, they don't get there by luck only, but I do think you can make a lot of your luck by by making contacts and so forth. But generally, hard work helps more than anything else. We were just actually making the same observation that many of the wonderful leaders that we've had on this podcast are from very humble beginnings as well. So that certainly resonates. Talking about one of the first things that you said is people who've had failures earlier on. Can I ask what some of your early failures were and what you've learned from them? Well, this show doesn't have enough time for all of those. <laughs> Give us the best one. <laughs> well, let me just summarize them. And look, I was a reasonably good student, but I wasn't a superstar student. I was not a very good athlete. I wasn't particularly charming. I failed in so many different things. The biggest failures you could say professionally were, I guess, that I worked in the Carter White House and uh, we thought we'd be reelected. I know it seems ridiculous in mm -hmm. hindsight because of inflation, hostages, and so forth. But we thought Ronald Reagan, I thought, was, was too old. I, I said to President Carter, you don't have to worry about re getting reelected. Ronald Reagan is 69 years old. At that age, he can't get out of bed in the morning. Now, I'm now 73, so 69 seems like a teenager. But I thought he was too old. I thought he was too conservative, and I just think he could possibly win. So we lost. So that was a professional failure. And it was more than just that. People used to come to me in the White House and say, you're a bright young man. If you ever want a job, call me. But what happened was I had to get a job after we lost the election. I started calling all these people and they never called me back because, you know, who wants a Carter White House aide when Reagan's president? So it took me a long time to find a job. Mm. And so I had a hard time explaining to my mother, I'm her only child, why her only child who was well-educated couldn't get a job. Oh, no. At Carlisle, we had some failures along the way. We, we had some funds that didn't work. We had some spectacular failures, unfortunately, at times. And, uh, you know, in the end, every deal didn't work out. And the attributes that you talked about, do you, do you use them when it comes to hiring CEOs for your portfolio companies now? Well, I generally don't hire the portfolio CEOs. I generally am hiring people at Carlisle over the years and uh, with the help of a firm called Russell Reynolds. <laughs> and uh, they, they were our principal uh, helper in that effort. And, and Clark obviously did a great deal of uh, work for us. And I would say over the years, I've interviewed thousands of people. I've made some mistakes in hiring people, and I've, I've made some good hires. Uh, two people I hired were are now better known. One is uh, 
Glenn Youngkin, who left us to go run for governor of Virginia. Uh, secondly, I hired a guy named Jay Powell. He was with us for a number of years. I think he's now doing something in the federal government. I can't remember exactly what. And then, of course, I did bring in some people that already were prominent. Jim Baker, George Herbert Walker Bush, Frank Carlucci, John Major. Uh, when I'm interviewing people who are not those famous kind of people, I'm interviewing people, young people, and I would look for these things. Mm -hmm. Do they have a drive? Do they really have a, a vision of why they want to be into the private equity? Is it just about money? Um, are they really um, uh, recognizing that this is something that is useful to be for society in some way? Some people may not think it is, but I want people that do, if, if I can find them. I'm looking for people that have a certain amount of humility. Yeah. I want people who are going to do something outside of work that I think contributes to society. I'm looking for people that don't think they're so smart that they don't need that work with other people. Let's talk, move to the newest book, How to Invest, David, which is currently a bestseller. Congratulations. Um, were people surprised when you called and said, I want to interview you about how to invest, given what you do for a living? Well, uh, not so much for this reason. At Carlisle, we used to try to attract people to our big, and we still do, to our big conferences. And to attract people, I would bring in prominent people. So people didn't want to come to listen to David Rubenstein in the early years. So maybe they still don't. But, but if I could bring in former President Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Ben Bernanke, um, you know, any former president of the United States, uh, Barack Obama, I would bring them in and then I would have them speak. But sometimes I found they weren't as exciting as a speaker as maybe I'd hoped. Mm. And so I decided I would try to maybe interview them, make it more humorous and way impersonal. Mm. And I talked to the speaking agent firms and they said, well, if the fee is the same, no problem. If you pay them the same for an interview as you pay for a speech, we're happy to have them do an interview. I started interviewing them and then it, Bloomberg saw it and they said, put it on TV. And so I've become known as an interviewer a little bit. And as a result, when I called people for this book, um, people knew that I did a fair amount of interviews. and I knew virtually everybody that I was interviewing. And when you know people you're interviewing, it's a lot easier to give them a sense that you're not going to embarrass them or something like that. Ray Dalio, Stan Drunkenmuller, uh, uh, Bayo Ngalesi, do you find... Uh similar traits that you talked about earlier in the great investors? Yes, they have these traits. Not every leader is a particularly well-educated, but many are. Um, but these are well-educated people. They tend to be good in math. They tend to like to make the final decision. They tend to like to be uh, in control. They are willing to admit mistakes very quickly because they know in investing you make mistakes and they learn that. They tend to be incredibly curious. They want to read whatever they can read, not just on the subject matter they might be focused on, but just you can't give them enough information. Whatever the conventional wisdom might be, they invariably want to go against it. And that's how they did well, by being not afraid to make a mistake and going against conventional wisdom. They also tend to be people who, at the, at the point of, that I tend to interview them, they're not doing it for the money. They love it. You talk about in the book, uh, in the introduction, the investing world is a little bit about predicting the future, i.e. picking an asset or a deal or a transaction to predict the future. Uh, as you know, as well as we do, in trying to pick leaders, particularly for the Carlisle Group, we're trying to predict the future too, predict future performance of, of an executive, why we do behavioral science and all of that. When I was a younger executive, it was follow the money. Now there's so much cash around the world, you need great leaders. How do you look at all of the investable dollars versus the opportunities now? Because there's so, there are so many of your competitors out there. How does one get a winning edge? You don't need to be number one, necessarily. In other words, if you're 
in an athletic competition, generally only one team wins. Um, and you win a championship, one team wins. In the investment world, you don't have to win every deal and you don't have to uh, be the best in every single investment category. You can be pretty good and still do quite well. So um, I don't feel quite the same sense of competition as I would have if I was in an athletic competition where you have to win or you, if you don't win, you lose. My view is it's better to support people and hire people who are hardworking and smart. Generally, I think you need to hire younger people uh, increasingly. Make sure you don't just hire older people because the people that change the world are younger people. People in their 70s are not changing the world by and large. People in their 20s and 30s, they have ideas, they have fresh insights, they're changing the world. And so trying to get those insights is very important. Well, as you said to me one time, wealthy people aren't good at asking other people for money. So don't bring me wealthy people to fundraise. I've never forgotten. Right. Um, a question. In the book, we talk about new things, crypto. Um, in the book, one of the people you interview is quoted as saying, crypto is as easy as selling any security. We've got all the infrastructure uh, in the markets to take trade billions of dollars a day. People are fascinated by crypto. Um, you know, it's, it's rapid ups and downs. How do you look at crypto and, and how do people come talk to you about crypto? Well, as we talked today, FTX has filed for bankruptcy. And so it's a different world. When I in, did my interview, I did it with Mike Novogratz, who made a lot of money in uh, Bitcoin. When Bitcoin and other prices started going down in May of 2022, uh, the world looked a little different for crypto. My view of it is that, and I don't own any cryptocurrencies, I own some investments in companies that service the industry, but my view is do not put more into it than you're prepared to lose because it's very mm -hmm. risky. If you get pleasure going to Las Vegas and gambling, knowing you're going to lose probably at the end, uh, fine. Unfortunately, some people put in more money than they probably can afford to lose, and that's a problem. I do think that more regulation is likely now, probably not a bad thing. And I think that the industry is not going away because I think younger people are still going to be pushing cryptocurrencies for a while. And I do think that there is still going to be a residual interest around the world in this in this form of investing, though I would say it's not necessarily the safest thing. In my book, John Paulson uh, really castigates uh, cryptocurrencies. And um, I would say uh, there are many other more seasoned investors who actually have the same view, Warren Buffett or people like that, Charlie Munger. On that note, David, let's talk about the economy as a whole. Most of the CEOs across industries are now preparing for a global recession. You've been through quite a few during your career. What advice would you have for them as they prepare for a possible downturn? Well, I, I believe we are more likely to head, in, head into a recession uh, than not. Uh, when Historically, when the Fed increases interest rates fairly dramatically over a short period of time, it invariably produces a so-called hard landing, which is a euphemism for a recession. A recession is something we have every seven years on average, so it's not something to be completely feared. It's you know, The world will survive if we always get out of recessions. But I do think people now should recognize that the Fed's intent on getting inflation down to 2%, which is probably lower than it has to go, is probably going to produce a hard landing probably for two quarters or so, sometime in 2023. Nobody knows for certain when that will be. But it's also a good investment opportunity. You know, the greatest fortunes are often made in investing at times when the market is uh, so-called has blood in the streets. So the great fortunes were made in, in uh, not 2008, 9, 10, when, when there was distress because of uh, the Great Recession. And a lot of people bought their own debt back at a discount. They bought companies at, at very low prices. And I think you're going to see some of that now. So 
I wouldn't be afraid of a recession, I would tell people. I would say just be prepared for it and recognize that you can make a lot of money investing in a recession if you buy at the right price and you know what you're doing. I think that's very wise advice and actually different to things that I've heard from other leaders. Is that is there advice that you'd have at the board level as well? You serve on a number of boards. Um, right. The boards are obviously dealing with a lot more uncertainty than ever before. Any advice you'd have for board members? Well, there are two different types of boards, for-profit board members and not-for-profit. Yeah. Not-for-profit, there's the old saying that if you're going to go on a non-profit board, you give, you get, or you get off. In other words, you give money, you get money, or you get off the board. And that may be an unfair way of looking at it, but nonprofit boards are designed to help raise money. I mean, there's obviously a fiduciary responsibility, but in, in nonprofit boards are generally looking for help from board members to help raise money. If they can't give it, help them raise it. A for-profit board is designed to kind of oversee the CEO and the management team towards a, uh, a goal of making a, a profit and, and making a re reasonably good and fair profit. Um, I think uh, on all boards, you need to have people that are engaged. You can't just yeah. phone it in. You, you have to show up in the meetings or attend the meetings, read the materials, make uh, calls on behalf of the CEO or leadership when they ask you to do so, help recruit other board members, and take it seriously. Um, if you're only going to be on the board just so you can say you're on the board, I don't think that's a good thing to do. We'll be right back with David. But first, Helen Metcalf, a board consultant in our London office, dives into the considerations that go into building highly effective boards. It takes effort and commitment to be a high performer, to be the best at what you do. But what differentiates a top performing board? These are boards that operate in a highly effective manner and oversee a corporation that has outperformed its peers for at least two consecutive years. We call these gold medal boards. But what does it take to create one? To find out, we surveyed over 1,000 supervisory board level directors from more than 41 countries and found that gold medal board directors outperform their peers in five key areas. First, they're more likely to communicate and engage with others in a constructive manner. They go out of their way to understand differences and perspectives and ask the right questions to keep the discussion focused on what matters most. Second, they're fully engaged. They show up prepared, pay attention in meetings, and engage on topics that are important to the board. Third, they know that relationships matter. They go out of their way to build and sustain critical relationships with their peers, the CEO, and other key executives. Fourth, they demonstrate sound business judgment. They often approach decision-making from a long-term perspective, helping the board avoid a short-term mindset. And finally, gold medal board directors act with integrity and are far more likely to demonstrate courage and build trust. As Peter Drucker famously said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. This clearly applies to the best boardrooms as well. To learn more about gold medal boards and what you can do to enhance your own board performance and effectiveness, go to russellreynolds.com slash insights. And now we go back to our conversation with David. 
David, let's talk about the world of philanthropy. Um, now, you're one of the original signers of the Giving Pledge, which um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, it's a commitment of some of the world's wealthiest individuals to dedicate the majority of their wealth to charitable causes. Talk to us about what the pledge means to you and why you signed on. Well, Bill Gates, uh, I'd come to my office for lunch one time. I really didn't know him, but he, he asked to see me for something, and we, we had a nice lunch. And then subsequently he called me and said he was setting up the giving pledge. Would I sign it? And I said, well, I intended to give away all my money anyway. I, you know, I want to give my children, I have three, a very good education. They all um, have gone to very good schools. They all have MBAs, and they're all in private equity. So what more does one want hmm. from your children, right? So um, I didn't think that they burdening them with billions of dollars was necessarily a great way to keep them, um, you know, hardworking. So I, I intended to give away most of my money. And so I, I uh, told Bill that I was, I'd be happy to do it. I, I hoped to give away most of the money while I was alive. The giving pledge basically says if you have a net worth of a billion dollars, you commit to give more than half of it away during your lifetime or upon your death. And so uh, I didn't think it was that complicated to do. I, I did sign it. There were, there were 39 others who signed it at the time. And now we have about 200 plus who have signed it, more in the U.S. than anywhere else. Uh, I think it's basically a, 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 the reason I did it was not only because I think it's a good thing to do and support certain causes, but I wanted to show other people that it's a good idea to kind of be involved with philanthropy. Mm. I came from modern circumstances. I'm now not hoarding my money. I'm trying to give it away and hopefully for good purposes. And so I hoped I was a bit of a being a bit of a role model for people from modest circumstances who got lucky in the financial world. And, you know, other people um, have had worse economic situations than I did when they were growing up. And they also are very philanthropic. So I think it's a it's a good thing. I, I think the biggest challenge with the giving pledge is that we have to make certain we don't think we don't send the message that you have to be a billionaire in order to be philanthropic. Mm. And also, I want to make sure that people don't think that philanthropy is only about giving money. Um, philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. And you can love humanity by giving your time, your ideas, and your energy. And many people uh, should regard their time as their most valuable asset. You can't make any more time. You can make more money. So I always try to encourage people who don't have a lot of money to give away, give your time, give your ideas, your energy, and that can be just as valuable. Didn't you find out that your mother, who was of modest means, you found out after her death, she had been incredibly philanthropic, though in small bits? Yes. My mother, I couldn't give my mother very much money because she wouldn't take it. She had more than enough money, um, and I gave her a fair bit, but she didn't want all the money I was prepared to give her. Uh, when she passed away, um, she had uh, two things. One is she, uh, the only scraps, uh, a scrapbook she had of me were things about my philanthropic gifts, any business accomplishments. She didn't really think that was worth noting. And secondly, um, when her mail got to redirected to me, um, I could see every day I'm getting 25 requests for, for, for money because she had been giving everybody who never mailed her a philanthropic request, $5, $10, $15, $50. And so I have this list of, you know, hundreds of organizations that she was giving money to because she wasn't good at saying no. But she meant well, and she wanted to help people. But, you know, that's what she did. So now I'm trying to figure out what to do with these hundreds of organizations. And do you make your own decisions, or do you have certain themes that you follow yourself and what you want to support? Yes, um, I have four themes. Number one, I want to start something that otherwise wouldn't get started. Two, I want to finish something that otherwise wouldn't get finished. Three, I want to do something where I have an intellectual interest and I will stay engaged and not just by writing a check, but maybe being on the board or being helpful in other ways. 
And four, I'd like to see progress in what I'm supporting in my lifetime. So there are certain causes that are great, but I don't think I have enough money to make a difference or enough energy or not, knowledge to make a difference or going to see the progress in my lifetime. So I tend not to support them. But I generally, I'm not that unusual what I do. Most of my money goes to education, medical research. Carlisle is, has typically gone where people have not gone before, whether it was infrastructure early on or telecom or Africa. Um, you have long-term, long long-dated vehicles, etc. What, what do you see that between the pandemic, uh, war, the speed with which decisions get made and, and society reacts to news these days, do you see some other pivot coming that, that you think private capital is very important to what that pivot might be? Well, clearly private capital is now trying to help with the energy uh, situation we have. We, we have global climate uh, warming or change, as you might call it. And, and I think private capital is now trying to redirect a lot of its capital away from oil and gas and carbon-related energy to more um, renewable kinds of energy. That is going to take many, many, many decades to actually bring about. But I think private capital is leading that effort. Historically, in private equity, you worried about the highest rate of return you could legally get, the greatest MOIC or multiple uninvested capital you could get, and, and so forth. Uh, now people recognize that ESG is a very important as a consideration in your investments. And I think private capital is, is helping move uh, the world of investing in, in that direction. I mean, it's obviously, a, a, as you know, an important topic for us and for me and our work around sustainable leadership. And it is interesting to see that that, that executive who tends to think longer and may, in fact, the, the great credit to their leadership may be when, they, when they're gone and they've pushed the envelope on innovation and they've particularly formed partnerships, ecosystems, to, so that one company doesn't bear the fruit. How do you look at capital? You've co-invested, I know, but do you see that, that innovation can come together through multiple partnerships? How do you look at that? Well, obviously, um, the greatest ideas of all time, the greatest innovations tend to come out of one person's head. And, you know, Jeff Bezos says we're going to sell books over the Internet. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg says we're going to have something called Facebook. Uh, they tend to be one person who comes up with an idea, though uh, it turns out that generally these great ideas, you usually have partners. Usually there are more than a few, more than one or two. But so the bigger the group you have, the less innovative the group is going to be. Hmm. Um, as you probably know, if you're in a board meeting, you often go to the lowest common denominator. What can everybody go, agree on? But if you only have one person who's making the decisions and one person is coming up with the ideas, you'll probably have more creative ideas. So there's always a trade-off. How much of a consensus do I need to get something to happen? But how much uh, creativity am I going to lose by having that consensus? So no perfect answer, but that's generally a trade-off you're always making. Hmm. Uh, back just one more thing on philanthropy, what you call patriotic philanthropy, which not many people before you were giving to either the federal government, not to, or for projects of the federal government, uh, and you've been prolific in those. Does history help you think about the future? You've done a great deal to preserve history or to donate history back to, to our country. How do you look at history as you think about the future at the same time? Well, the theory of history is that if you learn about what occurred before, you'll learn about the mistakes and maybe you can avoid them. Mm. So um, a famous Harvard historian once said, those people that don't know history are condemned to relive it. So 
with evolution in the biology area, evolution or survival of the fittest, as some would call it, basically you're, you're trying to make progress. You're trying to you know, improve the genes every generation or so. You should do the same with uh, in history. Figure out what went wrong, what you can do better in the future, and learn from it. So what I've tried to do is this. I tried to um, buy some historic documents, historic books, put them on display. And I tried to fix historic buildings like the Washington Monument or things like that. Why? Why do I want to preserve and put on display the rare copy of the Declaration of Independence? We know what's in the Declaration of Independence. You can look it up on a computer slide. So why preserve it if they're old or wrinkly? Why not just uh, have one computer slide which has everything? The answer is the human brain has not, fortunately, evolved to the point where if you see the original, it's the same experience as seeing it on, the, on a slide. So if I tell you I'm going to bring you to see the Magna Carta, and it's on display in the National Archives, before you go, you're probably going to read about the Magna Carta. When you're there, you're going to have a curator mm -hmm. tell you about it. And when you leave, you're more likely to read about it. And therefore, you're more likely to convey the message about the Magna Carta to people. And therefore, that's why it's important to preserve the past, because it's more likely the way the human brain works that people will remember it more and therefore hopefully be more informed citizens. The theory of our democracy, a representative democracy, is that you have an informed citizenry. That was the theory behind the government when we launched it. Well, now, we didn't think everybody was going to be a, a rocket scientist, but we thought people would be reasonably informed. And to the extent that we don't have informed citizenry, we have a less good democracy. There you go. That's how we learn. That is how we learn. Um, David, thank you so much. Your insights have been super valuable. We'd like to end each podcast with a set of rapid fire questions. This is where we're going to give you a series of five questions and ask you to reply as quickly as possible. Are you ready? Well, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> what was your first job? My first job was selling magazines door to door when I was about 14 years old. That was the only job I could get at 14. And I wasn't that good at it because I kept thinking to the people that I was selling these magazines to didn't really need these kind of magazines. They were not, you know, upper income people. They were lower income people. And I didn't think they needed some of the fancy magazines I was asking to sell. So probably uh, that only lasted about three weeks. <laughs> Well, I sold stationery door to door when I was eight in a little red wagon, and uh, right. it, it, you learn to sell fast because otherwise I won't buy it. Second question: uh, What books are you currently reading? Well, I think uh, right now I'm, I'm, I read a lot of books because I interview uh, people on their books. So a new book that I'm, I'm reading on John Marshall. I'm going to interview the author tomorrow night, and uh, a really good book on on uh, that's out now on uh, Chester Nimitz. Um, there's a new book out on the. I would say the environmental movement of the 1960s and the 70s. And I'm reading that book now. It's a very long book. And I've just finished reading a book by Nina Totenberg on her relationship with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and her own uh, uh, life as well. A really interesting, fascinating book on the bestseller list now. Fantastic. Third question, David. Do you have any hidden talents? Um, they are so hidden that I, I don't think I have one. <laughs> um, I, have, I have no hidden talents. I barely have talents that are not hidden. I wish I did. Let, let me phrase it the other way then. What hidden talent do you wish you had? Well, I wish I was a better athlete. Um, somehow my body isn't as connected to the desire. Um, it isn't so great that doesn't that it produces great athletic accomplishments. I wish I was uh, had some musical skills. I have no musical skills. My mother sent me to a piano teacher because my last name is Rubenstein, thinking I would be like Arthur Rubenstein. <laughs> but uh, the piano teacher said after two weeks, Mrs. Rubenstein, save your money. So I, I don't have no, I have no musical skills. Um, and I'm, I'm tone deaf, too. I'm the chairman of the Kennedy Center, 
And you'd think I would have uh, some better musical skills, but I don't. Uh, I went to Las Vegas one time and in a, and, and a, a imitator of, of Cher was, uh, was performing and she called me up uh, from the audience and she asked me to sing along with her. And I said, look, I'm, I'm the worst person here. I'm tone deaf. She said, nobody is completely tone deaf. So just put your hands on my hips and sing, I got you, babe. I said, okay. <laughs> so after the song was over, she said, ladies and gentlemen, I've been doing this for 20 years. This is the only man I've ever met who is completely tone deaf. Tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay, next question. Since you, since you have such an appreciation for history, if you had a time machine and could go any time or place in the past, when and where would you go? Well, uh, I guess I'd like to go back to the time of the Civil War and interview Abraham Lincoln. I think he was the greatest American, and I you know, really would love to interview him. And, you know, as you, you do these podcasts, and I do some myself, think about this. The form of entertainment and, and, and communication we're now engaged in is a very new form of communication. For thousands of years, there were no interview programs. How can, how can civilization survive without podcasts, without interviews? There are no interviews of Abraham Lincoln. We don't have any interviews of George Washington. Mm. We have no interviews of William Shakespeare. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if you could actually go back and interview these people? Yeah. And I would go back and say, look, uh, King Henry VIII, uh, why didn't you just get a prenup with all your wives instead of having <laughs> to chop their heads off? Or Cleopatra, who was a better lover, Mark Antony or Julius Caesar? Yeah. Well, and I, I love your line of questioning, David. <laughs> and that leads nicely to the last question, which is what's that best habit of great leaders or the best trait that great leaders have? Well, I'd say um, giving uh, podcast interviews to you is one of the great. <laughs> I think that's a great trait. Um, Good recovery. Um, hiring Russell Reynolds for their searches is another great trait that I've observed over the years of great leaders. So what more do you want? I mean, hiring Russell Reynolds, what could be a better trait than that for a great leader? Well, another good trait might be checking out the David Rubenstein podcast or okay. television show. That's a good sign of leadership. All right. <laughs> well, listen, David, thank you again for being here. Fantastic discussion. So many different topics, but, but that's no surprise. Successful leaders talking recognizing failures the ability to start over, be persistent, pick yourself up, to share credit, but also take the blame if something goes wrong, to communicate well. You need to attract followers. We often say at Russell Reynolds, followership is now leadership. But you also have this vision of action to go, as you did as an entrepreneur and throughout your career. Working hard creates luck. Then we talked about investors, who not only have some of those earlier leadership traits, but they admit their mistakes quickly. Uh, and call it a day, move on. They love the game of wits to compete in the investment community. As we talk about investing in crypto and maybe broadly, um, only be willing to invest no more than you want to lose. Uh, it's like going to Las Vegas in some cases, so you should not be rolling the dice on everything that you have. And the investing community is not going away, that young people bring new ideas and new ways to look at it, and, and you encourage that new thinking. As we look more broadly to the future from investing, a recession probably will hit, given what we've seen the Fed will do. Uh, and this creates great opportunities at the same time. And from a governance standpoint, as you said so so humorously in a nonprofit, you either should give money, you should get money, or you should get off. Be proactive. Again, this theme of action in your career. And speaking of giving, you are part of the Giving Pledge, where you've acted as a role model. But remind us, it's not just whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, whether it was your mother in small donations or your gifts in big donations, that the Greek philanthropy is loving humanity, to help humanity, and to continue to give to humanity. 
And even you, with time as your most valuable asset, have said, I will stay involved with things that might not get started. I want to see things that will get finished. Um, I want to stay engaged, and I want to make sure we're making progress. So remembering that giving and loving humanity is an output of hard work and giving back. And finally, this sense of community that institutional investors want, whether it's energy transition or investing broadly, institutional investors now say that part of the communities that we're in, it's not just about having the return, it's returning as well as getting a return. So you've been a great guest to mix history, humility, and humor into who you are and how we can learn from you as a redefiner. Thank you for the time and all the redefining you've done in your career, David. Thanks for all your help over the years. Absolutely. It's lovely to meet you, David. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com, find us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time. Do you have a question on leadership, career development, joining a board, or other topics you'd like to ask one of our consultants? Well, now's your chance. Send us your question. Email us at redefiners at russellreynolds.com for an opportunity to have your question answered on the podcast by one of our experts. See you next time on Redefiners.